so, so the long biography should go to Stephen Carter, who is our, our speaker, our interviewee for the afternoon. Stephen spoke this morning about <coughs> the impeachment of Abraham Lincoln, which is his latest novel, the release of which has been keyed to the festival. So for those of you who are interested in the, the, the fictional side of Stephen Carter, you have an opportunity to pick up his absolute latest <laughs> book this afternoon. This afternoon, for this session, we're talking about this book, The Violence of Peace, America's Wars in the Age of Obama, which is a 2011 release, nonfiction, as the title might suggest. Stephen has, if you've seen his biography, you've read the back, back of his books, has written a lot. So he's got, what, half a dozen novels at this point? Five, five, five novels. Five novels and seven, eight Nonfiction nine. work, nine. My favorite by title is Civility, the Manners, Morals, and Etiquette of Democracy. Mine seems to me to get to the heart of a lot of what we're talking about at this Ideas Festival and is a very good book, as you might expect. When he's not writing, Stephen is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law at Yale University, where he has taught for 30 years. And I remember he, all this so, stuff. So, <laughs> And, and, and has been a moderator, as I currently am, but has moved on to less, less focused Aspen activities, except for what the board offers. Less, less strenuous Aspen less activities. Less strenuous activities. <laughs> so we're going to talk this afternoon about the ethics of war. Uh, this is part of the values track and raises questions that we have touched on in other moments over the past three, four days, but I think doesn't take much imagination to understand the, the immediate relevance of some of the conversation we'll have here now. My proposal is that I ask Stephen questions for maybe 30 minutes and then turn the floor over to you. We'll have a microphone set up in the aisle. You'll be able to come up and ask. I should tell you there, there, there's a, a double concern here. One, this morning, for logistical reasons, Stephen moderated himself. There was no interviewer. So he played very well the, the interviewer of Stephen Carter, uh, addressing, addressing himself as Carter, which I will not do. It feels just a little too familiar. But, but I'm, I'm going to try to match your level of, of inside knowledge uh, in what we do here. And then when you have your chance to ask questions, I would only encourage you, uh, bikes outside aside, to ask questions rather than make statements. We'll be touching on topics on which I think everyone in this room has views, but we're here, of course, to hear our, our guests' views. All right, shall we start? Sure. So the subtitle, America's Wars in the Age of Obama, suggests two things to me. One, that Americans make war pretty routinely. And two, that there may be something different about the way we make war in the, what you refer to as the age of Obama, which I assume is during our current president's presidency. Well, uh, I, I chose the subtitle, America's Wars in the Age of Obama, in part because, scroll back um, uh, three years, Obama takes office January 2009. The United States is in, involved in three wars, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, and the war that the Bush administration describes as a global war on terror. The Obama administration has tried various names for it. They don't like that one, but they can't think of one they like, so they call it different things at different times. There's th these three wars going on. Um, it's not by any means the only time in American history there have been three wars going on. That's happened with some uh, frequency. Uh, America's been involved in a lot of wars uh, over, over the years. Uh, but what struck me, what really interested me, was this, that... When Obama was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2009, um, in his acceptance speech, uh, he said, I'm president of the United States. Uh, there are things that I have to do to protect our country. But I believe that whatever America does, whatever any other great power does in the world, he said we should be held not only to a standard of legality, but to a standard of morality. That is, that... It shouldn't just be enough to ask, do we have the right to do what we're doing? It also should be asked, are we right to be doing what we're doing, and are we going about it in the right way? Obama invited uh, his critics and critics of America generally and fans to use the language of the Western just war tradition, which is a tradition really from Christian theology, but it's a tradition that undergirds modern international law, actually, uh, and to use that tradition as a way of criticizing 
or at least commenting upon uh, what America does. And this book, in part, accepts that invitation, first by looking at President Obama, both his arguments and his words, and then some of his actions. This <coughs> book came out at the midpoint of his presidency, when he'd been in the White House for exactly uh, uh, two years. It uh, came out January of, of 2011. And then second, uh, uh, I then spent time looking further back in American history, looking at some other wars, and I do develop this thesis. Uh, which some of my academic colleagues have been unhappy with, I, I should add, that there is a particular way that, that America makes war, and it has a couple of characteristics. Uh, one of them is captured by the British historian Paul Johnson, uh, who wrote that um, Americans are the only people in the world who whenever they start a war, they think they're going to win. They assume, they take it for granted that they're going to win. Most countries, they may hope they'll win. They may think they have a chance but they also recognize there's a non-trivial chance they'll lose, and if they do lose, it's not the end of the world, because you win some and you lose some. But America, you only win. He said that makes Americans unique in their outlook. He said no country has had that outlook in the world since Rome, is his, is his basic, uh, uh, basic point. And that does actually color our wars, going back to when we were a very young uh, country. So it's not only that we always think we're going to win, but that we should win, and because we should win, we often recognize relatively few restraints on what we're willing to do to win. I don't mean that we make war in highly immoral ways. I don't mean that. But it is the case that historically, all through history, we've brushed aside various inconvenient restraints at particular moments if we thought we saw a way to shorten a conflict or have a better chance uh, uh, to win. So those two things together represent the American way of, of making war. Do you want to give us a couple of examples? Sure. Uh, um, so here, here's some, some data points. Uh, so one of the examples I have in the book, during the Civil War, the following events occurred. As many of you, I'm sure, know, one of the controversial decisions the Lincoln administration made was to raise black regiments. First, they raised black regiments of people already free. Then they began to uh, free slaves and enroll them uh, in the army. So in response to this, the Southern Congress, the, the Congress of the Confederate States of America, adopted a law. Well, I, I can't remember now if it was a law or a, an administrative order from the office of the, the president of, of the Confederate States. Whichever it was, I think it was a law. The statute said that uh, any former slave who was caught in a Union uniform uh, was subject to imprisonment. And if he was an officer, he was subject to summary execution. Uh, if he'd formerly been a slave, was now an officer. And there were a lot of officers who had formerly been slaves. So Lincoln, how do, how do you respond to every president of the United States? What do you do? Well, this is how Lincoln responded. Lincoln said, for every former slave executed by the South, I will summarily execute one Confederate officer in U.S. custody. Now you can say that doesn't seem right, but that's an example of what I mean. Uh, and it's not, especially in the 19th century, an unusual thing uh, for an American leader to do. That's one kind of, uh, uh, of, of example. And there are a lot more, but that's, that's the sort of thing that I'm, that I'm talking about. The, the just war tradition you invoke in the book goes back well before the American Civil War. Could you talk a little bit about the, the fundamentals of that tradition? The, the just war tradition, as I mentioned, it, it, it actually it has roots that go way back to early Christianity, interestingly, but it didn't really take off until the discovery of the New World. Uh, especially after um, the uh, Spanish began to come to America and the Spaniards were so vicious in the treatment of the native peoples, uh, and that didn't turn a lot of heads in Europe, but there were a group of, of theologians and philosophers at the University of Madrid who began to wonder whether we shouldn't try to find some moral limits on how you treat people in time of war. And it was that search for moral limits of how you treat people. It's hard to believe that until the 15th century, it was a perfectly accepted part of warfare, that if you won, you had the right to slaughter all the people you'd just beaten in the war. That was just accepted. That was one reason people fought so hard, because you might get slaughtered uh, otherwise. That was just part of war is what, uh, uh, what happened. Uh, so the notion that there might be limits to what you can do began with the consideration of how you treated uh, other people and, and grew into this larger moral structure that then generated modern international law. But with the part President Obama was talking about when, in his speech, his argument was roughly as follows. 
that quite apart from whether something is legal or not for a country to do, whether it violates domestic law or international law, let's ask the following moral questions, he said. Is there, and these are the questions that the just war tradition asks, is there uh, a just cause for the war, something that's worth killing over in a moral sense? Even if there is a just cause, is there a reasonable hope of success? Can this violence actually accomplish a purpose of the greater good? And then, once you've gone down uh, that road, do you exercise your whatever military authority you're exercising uh, with, under the rules that are called in just war theory and in international or proportionality and discrimination? Proportionality has a lot of different definitions. The way the president used it, he meant using no more military force than is strictly necessary to achieve a, a just objective. Discrimination means you cannot target civilians. Uh, civilians may die, but they can never be the target. Only combatants uh, can ever be the target. And you see, the, even today, you see the battle over that. So if, if you take, for example, something today like uh, the, the arguments over drone warfare, something like that. So the Obama administration takes the position that the drone attacks are entirely legal. Let's assume for the moment that they are. But President Obama himself has said, well, let's ask about them from a just war perspective. So then you'd still want to know, are, is, the use, is that force proportional? If, one, is it justified? Two, is it proportional? And three, um, does it successfully discriminate between civilians and, uh, and, and combatants? The Obama administration says their, ration, their public legal rationale is that it does discriminate because it kills so few civilians compared to, say, the bigger bombs you could otherwise use. But that's the sort of point I think we should be arguing about. To the, the second of the, the three criteria you've laid out, that is, do we have a, a, any likelihood of a winning? Reasonable a reasonable success, okay. yes. yes. That rules out a whole lot of gallant combat in the name of principle regardless of the cost. I agree with that. And I, that, to me, is the weakest part of the just war <coughs> tradition yeah, although the president mentioned it in his speech, the weakest part of the tradition is the notion you have to have a reasonable hope of success. And, and so you think of something like the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. That wasn't a reasonable hope of success, but, but, but there's a power to doing it. it. It's hard to argue, since you're going to lose, you shouldn't have taken up arms. That doesn't seem to make any sense. I think the way to understand the reasonable hope of success criterion is this. It was really aimed at the notion of big country versus big country, not people defending themselves to the last man. If you, big country, are going to start a war over a big issue and kill lots of people with lots of destruction in the name of the good, are you even going to win this thing? Because if you're not going to win after all that, all the more reason not to get engaged in it uh, in the first place. I think that's the idea. It goes back to the notion of the sacredness of human life and that you cannot even indirectly take human life except for the highest of, of causes. So when did we agree on the sacredness of human life? Again, 16th century or? That's harder because even, you know, you have um, clerics, you, you, you have uh, someone like, say, Calvin, Right, who wrote about the sacredness of life and also uh, was willing to have servitists uh, burned at the stake. So, you know, it's not, it, it's hard to figure out um, exactly what that means. So we don't, have to, we don't have to use the word sacred to make the model work. Just think of it as simply this, that um, maybe what we could agree on is that we should kill as rarely as possible. And war kills a lot of people and a lot of them aren't combatants. A lot of them are innocents and civilians. Uh, and what President Obama asked us to do is before we get into that, to think about the to think morally about the cost, not just to think legally. Well, did the UN agree or something like that? But to ask ourselves, even if all the legal ducks in a row, or in a row are we doing the right thing? And you don't have to agree that the just the president can be wrong. The just war tradition doesn't have to be the right moral framework. I think the the exciting and important thing about the president's invitation is to accept the invitation to come up with a moral framework, and we really need one because. In America, we're really, really good at screaming that something's illegal, something's against the law. There ought to be a special prosecutor appointed. But we're not very good at just at saying it with anything, not just war, but things generally. You have the right to do that, but you shouldn't do it. It's wrong to do it. Words like that, right and wrong, are increasingly slipping from our vocabularies. But if we're talking about war, we can't let that slip away. And you know, so much of American life is so hyperpartisan. So ends govern. So much, well, I'll make this argument it helps my side, but not if it helps the other side, and so on. War is not the place to let that happen. When we talk about war, we're talking about sending 
our own young people off to kill and possibly be killed. That is something that should never be partisan. If we think a war, if a war is wrong when a Republican does it, the same war is wrong if a Democrat does it, and vice versa. If a tactic is wrong when one party does it, the tactic is wrong when the other party does it. To play politics, and if it's right when one party does it, it's right when the other one does it. To play politics with something like that, I think is outrageous. It's just a terrible, terrible thing. And one of the good things about President Obama's invitation is that by inviting us to think about these things in moral terms, he's also inviting us to think about it in terms that go beyond party. That is, you can be, say, I'm a Democrat, but this is wrong, and it'd be wrong for my party or the other party, or I'm a Republican, and this is wrong, it'd be wrong for my party or the other party. And to think that way instead of thinking about, well, but if I object to this, that's going to hurt my guy, and so on and so on. That's what the president, I think, was suggesting we try not to do, to avoid the partisanship, that is. I think that's a good thing. I think it would be good to be able to at least free war from the shackles of partisanship that tie down almost everything else we talk about. The way you frame it, though, Stephen, also takes us beyond the borders of this country. So it's not just about Democrat versus Republican or Democrat together with Republican, but you know, you argue that the president articulated his position in the Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech. You just re referred to the UN. So it sounds like within limits, at least, America's wars now get judged against international standards. Well, I think that's fair. That is to say, it is true that in the end, presidents of the United States are expected to make policy that's interest to the United States. But we are the most powerful nation in the world by a gigantic margin. There's no one else close. There was a recent estimate a couple of years ago in one of the military journals that the United States Air Force and Navy could beat off the combined Air Forces and Navies of the rest of the world. Not the ground forces, but the Air Forces, but the, but the Navies and, 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 and Air Forces probably. Um, we spend, the estimates vary between 42 and 48 cents of every defense dollar, um, uh, that's with dollar equivalents, um, uh, spent uh, in, in the world. Um, and what we do with our military affects people. And so there is, in the sense President Obama was inviting other people in the world into the, into the moral conversation. He's saying, if you think we're wrong, say we're, if you think we're wrong for moral reasons, then tell us what we're doing is immoral and tell us why. And if I could just mention, so think of two recent data points, two, two recent hard cases. Um, one is the drone attacks that I mentioned a moment ago, and one is Libya, the Libya intervention. Um, each of those, it seems to me, raised very profound moral questions that we could talk about uh, here. In Libya, uh, among the questions are, the President Obama, when he gave the speech about why we're going to Libya, he said we shouldn't have to wait until there are mass graves before we intervene. That puts a lot of pressure on being sure you're right that there are going to be <coughs> mass graves. And it strikes me that's a question where one can ask the, point of, the question about the point at which you intervene raises profound moral questions that we should talk about in a moral way rather than simply getting an argument of, well, did Congress declare war? Is this legal or that legal? Which strikes me as a kind of trivializing of the deep moral questions uh, that, that are stirred. And then the, the drone attacks. Um, the Obama administration has taken the position that for the foreseeable future, they expect this to be the principal type of warfare in which we're likely to be engaged with the Iraq drawdown uh, complete and with the continuing drawdown in Afghanistan, although the administration is a little cagey about exactly when that, that's supposed to end. And for understandable strategic reasons, they're cagey about it. Um, but it looks like the future, uh, the near future, belongs to the drones. That is, belongs to um, remote piloted drone aircraft, usually guided by spotters on the ground, although not necessarily. Uh, that when, they, when high, when, when uh, high value targets are spotted and we have a high degree of confidence it's the right guy, uh, we'll loose off a couple of Hellfire missiles or some other kind of, uh, of missile uh, at them and blow them up. Um, that, that raised a lot of interesting questions. Uh, and let me just mention two of the moral questions. Some of you may think of others. Uh, so one of the questions is if that's the future, if that's what we're going to be doing, think about are we going to really be following it as closely? When there's a war in Iraq, we follow it. We know our troops are engaged. We think about it. It's a presence in the front of our minds. When there's a war in Afghanistan, it's in the front of our minds. We think about it when we think about the military. 
If most of our warfare in the near term turns out to be um, drone attacks, it's likely we'll use, we, will, we as a public will lose track of them. And if we lose track of them, then we're putting an enormous amount of trust in those we elect to represent us and those they appoint uh, to do that in a way that's wise and thoughtful. And one could make the argument that it could be a little morally uneasy about delegating that much authority that then becomes practically uncheckable because we don't follow it. It'll fall off the evening news after a while, as being this just occasional uh, drone warfare. That's one kind of question uh, uh, that it raises. Some people call that the boots on the ground question, although I think that's a, a, probably a little too facetious way of putting it. There's another question drone attack raises. Um, the Obama administration says that the drone attacks are more moral than bombing with some sort of other standoff weapon, uh, because if you drop, say, you know, a thousand-pound paveway bomb on a house where there's a higher-value target, you're going to bring down all the houses around it and kill lots and lots of innocent people. With the drone attack, um, you can fire the missile in his bedroom window. You can limit the damage to a few floors of his house. And yes, there'll be some civilian casualties, but they'll be limited. Let's accept that that part is true. Does the fact that we know exactly what the civilian casualties will be make it better or worse? That is, think about that. You drop a bomb, you know you're going to kill a lot of people, but you, you fire the missile and you're counting the people. You're saying, well, there are six non-combatants in there right now. Should we go ahead uh, uh, or not? In a way, as a, from, as a logical proposition, it makes sense to use the missile instead, but it feels more cold-blooded somehow. At least that's the way a lot of critics uh, put it. At least raises questions, I think, that are worth... Uh, talking about, again, not in legal terms, although we can have legal arguments, but in moral terms. And those, the moral argument is one the whole world can play. Anyone, it seems to me, can make a serious moral argument of what one should or shouldn't do. The one thing that Americans can't do with our military power is wish it away. You can't pretend it's not there. And, and Paul Ramsey, one of the great uh, uh, just war thinkers, wrote during the Vietnam War, uh, that he thought it is, the, it is a moral responsibility of every American to have a positive view of what it is they think the military ought to do. It's not to say, well, I don't want you to do this. Since they're not going away, uh, since they are part of the projection of American power and influence around the world, what exactly is it that you think um, the military should, uh, should be doing? Why could our military not go away? I'm not saying it couldn't. I'm saying it won't. It's a, it's a matter of being politically realistic. It is going to be here for a period of time. And right now, the truth is we do a lot of things in the world that nobody else can do. Think of keeping up with the shipping lanes. The American Navy, with its several fleets, by keeping up with the shipping lanes, greatly reduces the cost of shipping and trade, and therefore consumer goods, not only here, but around the world. And that's something that, one thing that, uh, that we do. Our going to the aid of <coughs> vessels that are threatened by pirates, not just the famous ones around Somalia, but elsewhere, as well, that's one tiny piece of a mission. But my larger point is that realistically, you can imagine 75 years from now X and Y and Z, but in the near term, they're going to be here, and the question is, what are, what are they to do? Right, but so now this is the U.S.'s policeman to the world. Well, you know, you and I talked about this yesterday, and I'm like Michael Walzer's view, not policeman, but firefighter. Uh, Walzer says, the policeman you expect to be everywhere. Think of yourself, you're a firefighter, and you have only one bucket. Right? One bucket of water. And there's a bunch of different fires. You've got to decide which one to fight. You can't fight all of them. But should you decide, if, you, if you're the guy with the bucket, should you decide, I can't fight all of them, I won't fight any of them. I'll just sit here with my bucket and let the world burn. Walzer, who's the great Princeton philosopher, thinks, that, um, thinks that's immoral. If you have, he doesn't say you have to go out and buy a bucket. He's very clear. If you don't have a bucket, you don't have to buy one. You don't have to fill it. But if you've got a bucket, and it's full of water, and there's a bunch of fires, you can't just sit there and say, well, you know, I've got other stuff to worry about. I, my bucket's going to sit there, and I'm going to go off and do whatever. What does I do. he address how you pick which fire to put out? Well, he does at some length, and one doesn't have to agree with his view. He's, he just thinks we ought to make a choice, and, and, and as opposed to just sitting around with a bucket and not, and, and, and not using it. And that part I agree with. I think we could have lively conversations about what... The downside of American power... Well, I'm not a realist, you see, as, as they call themselves, so... We also see it's the upside of American power. The downside of American power is our tendency is to think, well, if we only have one bucket, the place we should use it is what we need to do is assist our closest allies. We, places where we have a particular interest are the places where the bucket needs to be brought. 
And my view of the bucket is the 800,000 people in Rwanda were the place where the bucket needed to be brought, even though we had no particular strategic interest um, uh, there, and yet a huge proportion of the population uh, died. And we, that should have been one of America's wars? I believe that should have been one of America's wars, and I fully accept the wisdom of those who say that it was the bad experience in Somalia that caused the Clinton administration and a number of European administrations as well to decide not even to try in, uh, uh, in Rwanda. And I'm willing to accept that that is, as a matter of facts on the ground, that's what happened. But there are things in the world that happen that are sufficiently horrible uh, that if you can have a hope of stopping them, I think sometimes you have to, have to try. And that strikes me as, in our modern history, post-World War II history, the one that we had the largest obligation to try to stop, uh, and did the and, and then didn't uh, didn't stop. Do you, do you believe that our failure to intervene in Rwanda can, has conditioned our response to the wars that we've waged under? Well, that, that, that's a, that's a fair question. Uh, there are a lot of people who think that one reason that President Obama was so keen to intervene in Libya was he had very firmly in mind the <coughs> experience of the Clinton administration not um, intervening in Rwanda and didn't want to have that on his conscience. Uh, in a sense, and that may be. Uh, that that may be true. Um, on the other hand, Americans are quickly exhausted by adventures abroad, and there's a theory out there that if we had intervened in Rwanda, we'd very unlikely to have gone to Iraq, for example, because after all, there's only you get there's only so many wars that, that people can sustain over a period of time, and political leaders tend to be sensitive to how many they're going to um, uh, they're going to get. You just said I'm not a realist. Yes. Did I quote? Do I quote you correctly? So my understanding of realism in international relations is people will do, countries will do what they need to do in order to achieve their ends. So yes. this is an ends and means argument, and you say for your purposes, ends don't necessarily justify the means. What's the alternative? That's right. I, well, let, let me say this: I am descriptively a realist, but not normatively a realist. That is, we're talking about re- people who call themselves realists in international relations and political science and elsewhere tend to say, A, that countries will do what they are going to do, and B, that therefore you either constrain them by various international institutions, you don't constrain them at all, they'll just go out and do that. They're not amenable to argument and and so on, although they may be amenable to force and and, and sanctions. Um, My view is that moral argument matters, and it matters a great deal in everyday life, and it, it is important in the making of policy that right and wrong are often the correct tools with which to measure what we do. And the fact that we don't agree on what's right or what's wrong is beside the point. That's the good thing about having the argument, that we help illuminate for each other what we think is right and, and, and what we think is, uh, uh, is wrong. So, so one of the reasons that some of my colleagues in the law, in legal, the legal academy, get angry at me is I'm not a great fan of international law. And when I say I'm not a great fan, I don't mean I'm against it. But I, I find the question of morality, what one should or shouldn't do, a more important question. Uh, to me, legality is a second-order uh, uh, question, and too many people are satisfied with that question. That is, so if they don't like something the United States government is doing, they want to sue or something like that is, is the answer. That it must be that it's illegal. It could be perfectly legal and still be perfectly uh, wrong. And by the way, it could be illegal and still be right. Let's go back to Rwanda for a minute. So you have Rwanda, and 800,000 people are going to die. And while everyone says, yes, it was hard to see it was going to develop that fast, by the end of 10 days, it was pretty clear the direction this was uh, taking. Order had collapsed. The slaughter had had, uh, commenced. Now, what do you do about that? Suppose that what you say is, I'm going to go to the United Nations, and and the United States wants to go to the United Nations. What if the United Nations says no? There are a lot of international scholars who say that you cannot intervene in another country without a United Nations resolution. Well, suppose that's the case. So so I'm ready to go. I I think I could stop it. I've got X number of people. I've got it, and I've mapped this out. United Nations says no. So you say, oh, well, I guess I'll go home. It strikes me, no, you don't. Then at that point, the United Nations rule is simply an unjust law. And it's an unjust law, and since it's an unjust law, you don't have to obey it. You go in and you stop the slaughter anyway. That's what I mean about the distinction between between law and, uh, and morality, which to me is, is, is quite important. In what forum would you have the conversation about morality on the international scale you're offering? Well, yeah, we but, have here. So, <laughs> I don't know. There are 40 people in the room. There are, what is it, 8 billion people on the face of the earth at the moment? Maybe yes, but these people are clearly on. representative of the, of, of, of the people <laughs> of the, on the planet, wouldn't you say? <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> 
I'm here. <laughs> I mean, I, I, that, that's, a, that's a reasonable question, and I don't entirely have an answer to that. Um, uh, a friend of mine, a, a, a colleague of mine uh, on the Yale Law School faculty, and I talked about this, and he talked about, he'd recently, he had come back from a, a trip to, um, he went to India and uh, Singapore and somewhere else, I don't remember, and he said he talked about um, war and morality with the intelligentsia of these various countries, and he said that those were countries that were the intelligentsia have a great deal of influence over, over policy and over politics. I don't know if, you, if people would agree with that, but that was his, his view, and that therefore he thought in those countries, talking to the intelligentsia was, and getting them talking about these things is actually an important way of getting this argument uh, going. The one thing I'm pretty sure of is it would be very hard to have any kind of serious moral conversation of the kind of, uh, of competitive... You know, my network likes the Republicans, my network likes the Democrats' vision that so much of, of television and radio uh, talk is, and that's too bad. And I say that very sincerely because though these are, are, are place, people who have media outlets. Um, I know they have constituencies to please, and I know they've got money to make, but they, a lot of them have really big audiences. You know, and, and to really invite people, whatever you've got to do the rest of the day, to spend part of the time really inviting people in deep and thoughtful conversation. Yeah, all right, maybe it don't make quite as much money that hours in the other hours, but, but, but it strikes me that that kind of thing, all right, it's pie in the sky. I'm, I'm, I'm being an academic innocent, fair enough. But, but it, it strikes me that that, that that kind of thing would be an enormously valuable uh, public service. And similarly, if, just think of our, if our politicians, especially when they talked about war, spent less time on applause lines and slogans, which I despise, um, but that's my innocent academic side again, uh, and, and spent more time talking to us like adults, I think. Um, and again, this isn't a partisan thing. You go back and you look at the Lincoln-Douglas debates, you know, and these guys would talk for three hours. I'm not saying they've got to talk for three hours. What's interesting is the audience would listen for three hours, and the speeches would be published, and, you know, collections of political speeches in the 19th century were big bestsellers. Talking about a country that had 30 million people, and you could sell 250,000 copies of a book that was just a collected political speeches of William Seward or, or something like, like that. I mean, try to, if you envision that day, that's like, you know, what is that? That's like selling two and a half million copies of a book of political speeches um, uh, today. People were interested in it. They read, they wanted to, because they, since the politicians were willing to express themselves at great length, and, the, and there were actual arguments. They were, these books weren't um, sort of made-up <coughs> campaign biographies. They were detailed, thoughtful arguments that adduced evidence and so on. And, and I thought, now, now, the 1860s would have been a terrible time to live, especially for me. But that part, mm. the level of argument, was really, really good. So you've invoked the possibility of conversation in this room. We should make it real. Have a conversation in the room, please. We're going to start with you, Amy, because I think you indicated yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So usually, um, usually wars have two sides. At least. Yes. So the drone... Uh, argument. How would the drone argument change if all of a sudden we had drones? And I assume the technology is not like getting a nuclear weapon. Technology is fairly easy to obtain. Uh, coming over the United States and even killing three civilians, what would the Obama administration say then? That, that's a fair question. And let me go back to, before I say it, let me go to an earlier point. One of the concerns that some of us have about the Obama administration's assertion of authority in the drone wars generally is the argument is that the battlefield is worldwide. And the administration has absolutely refused to preclude the possibility of its, of its using drones inside the United States. So the first thing, before you think of the drones coming over the mountain, they might be American drones coming over the uh, mountain. Now, that would be politically enormously dangerous and set very bad precedent. I'm not saying they would do it. But what's interesting, the, the continuity between the Bush administration and the Obama administration is that with the single exception, it's an important exception, of, uh, of what the Bush administration uh, called various things like uh, extreme interrogation and other people called torture, with that single exception, their approach to the war on terror is very similar. It, and the arguments they make it publicly uh, in support 
of the war, of the war are very similar. And both of them claim enormously wide authority. Let it be sure, the Obama administration has used drone attacks at a far higher rate, more than, originally twice the rate, now much more than that, that the Bush administration um, uh, ever did. The claim of the worldwide battlefield is one the Bush administration never made. They were very careful about that. That's a, that's a new claim from the Obama administration. Now, what you're asking is, what if somebody else used them? That is to say, if we can send a drone and kill the leader of Al-Qaeda, can't the leader of Al-Qaeda sell a drone and kill us? Well, uh, in just war theory, there is something called the, uh, the doctrine of equivalence, which for those of you who know patent law, it's not that kind of equivalence. It's the, the notion that what is sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, even in, in every war, no more than one side can be fighting justly. They could both be unjust, but no more than can be just. And yet, once the war begins, they're both allowed to use exactly the same tactics. They're both prohibited to use exactly the same tactics. So ordinarily, you would think in war, under that doctrine, and since the president himself said we should use just war theory, if we can use drones, they can use drones. How does the administration escape that? The same way the Bush administration did. By saying that because the terrorists don't actually have a right to fight. And that that doctrine only applies to people who have, who are so-called legitimate combatants. It says terrorists are not legitimate combatants, therefore they have no right to engage in these things. Now the danger of that, that makes them very attractive. <coughs> to say they're not legitimate combatants, traditionally international law meant they're the so-called enemies of all the world. To be an enemy of all the world means you can be killed summarily wherever found. There is an old international tradition which, at, although it isn't used anymore, has never been, it's, it's a traditional part of international law, it's never been revoked by any treaty. Pirates can be executed summarily, for example. That, they don't do it anymore, uh, but actually that goes way back in international law. It's still part of customary international law. You can ask them, why? Because a pirate is the enemy of all the world. If you're the enemy of all the world, you have no legitimate right to fight. If you have no legitimate right to fight, there's no technique you're allowed to use. So if Al-Qaeda sent missiles over this mountain, saying to get here, they would be illegal for the same reason every other act that Al-Qaeda takes is illegal, because it has no right to fight. So what if it's not Al-Qaeda? What if it's the Taliban? What if when the war in Afghanistan begins in October of 2001, and you're, so then you're fighting against a government? What if that government sends the missiles back? Well, you know what? Under both international law and just war theory, have got every right to do it. And that's why, if you're going to do this stuff in the world, you have to have a military that's strong enough to make sure that they can't. That's really the only solution. It, it sounds almost counterintuitive, but it's really true. So yes, yeah, so under, under the argument pressed by both the Obama and the Bush administrations, the reason Al-Qaeda can't shoot at us is because they have no right to shoot. The reason the Taliban can't shoot us is because we're too strong. Not, but they certainly have the right under international law to, uh, to do it. Other questions? So I, actually, I, the lady's first in this case because I think your hand actually did go up first. Remember, you're asking a question okay. and tell us who you are. Yes, my name is Karen Holberg. I come from Argentina. Thank you very much for, for your enlightening talk. Uh, I, I have two short questions uh, regarding three of the issues you pose on discrimination and, uh, and uh, on, on the morality of... Uh, of, of war, and it, it concerns nuclear weapons. Uh, I want to, one, the first question uh, concerns the morality of nuclear weapons. Are, we know that they are not, uh, that, they're, that they're indiscriminate destruction and that they, they're intrinsically immoral. I would like to know what is, uh, in your opinion, the public perception of that, the public awareness in this moment, and how can we convey the message of immorality of, the nucle of nuclear weapons? And what's the discussion in the US? The second question concerns proportionality. Uh, I'd like to know what is the rationale. I'm a scientist, so I try to understand things basically. Uh, what is the rationale behind the, the proportionality uh, rule, which I think comes from old traditional warfare, where one <coughs> used to count heads? Or, or uh, what is the point of having 8,000 warheads on each, on each side when, if one for retaliation purposes, with one or two or five, or you name it, weapons, warheads, uh, nuclear weapons, it would be enough to retaliate to 8,000 when it is costly, it's environmentally <coughs> very threatening, and, and, and it's not humanitarian. Thank you. Well, those, those, are, those are very good questions. Um, let me answer both uh, briefly. I'll do the second one first. Uh, as to proportionality, um, proportionality gets interpreted in a lot of, uh, of different ways. Uh, but the basic rule of proportionality isn't that you use no more force than the other guy used. 
It's that you use no more force than is necessary to accomplish whatever your just objective is. That gets very tricky when it's translated into military doctrine. A lot of this is taught to American military commanders, uh, and they take this stuff very seriously. But, and, but it's hard sometimes uh, to decide exactly what counts as proportional. And so one of the famous conundrums, you can find this in a lot of the military strategy journals, um, and it's not a conundrum for a commander, but a, con a moral conundrum is to think about the following. Uh, suppose you're fighting a, a, an entirely just war, and you have to win the next battle. And you have two ways to win it. And one way would end up killing 100 of your own soldiers and 200 of the other side. And the other way would kill none of your soldiers and 10,000 of the other side. Um, which would be more just? It's hard to imagine a leader choosing the way that, well, I'll, t I'll go ahead and have 100 of my people die. Although, that was the argument, actually, with the dropping of the bomb on, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That was exactly the argument. It was clear the U.S. was going to win the war. The question was whether it was worth it to take the losses of invading the Japanese homeland um, uh, or not. So that's the right, the right question. My only point is it has a, a lot of answers. On nuclear weapons, uh, the Catholic bishops in 1983, the U.S. Catholic bishops, published a pastoral letter arguing that nuclear deterrence as a means of keeping the peace um, was immoral. It was immoral because they argued it was only, its only purpose was to threaten someone with annihilation. Since the annihilation was immoral, then threatening them with annihilation was immoral. I take it that's the, sort of the form of argument that you're, that you're talking about. Now, whether one thinks they were right or wrong, something really interesting happened. What I really liked about that historical moment was that, that the Catholic bishops invoked just war theory. The Reagan administration, in its response, which was a, a, a white paper that was signed by Caspar Weinberg, I don't know who wrote it, invoked just war theory. That is, they, taught, they argued in the same terms. They didn't say, oh, you know, you're religious people, you don't belong in public debate. And they didn't say, well, we've got responsibilities you don't understand. They actually tried to... Now, I'm not saying that their response was driven by just war theory. I'm not saying they sat around the defense department and said, well, let's see, are they right? I, I, I have no doubt that, the, that their response was driven by the end they wanted to reach, but at least we were having the argument. And I thought that was actually, in many ways, a fantastic moment, a brief one, but a fantastic moment in American history when at least we were having a moral argument in, um, uh, in, in the same terms. My own view, I know I, I always get a lot of pushback when I say this, and I understand the pushback. I, I think that, that dropping the bomb was a great blot on, on Truman's presidency. I understand the reasons for it. Um, I've read a couple of the biographies. I've read some of what Truman's written about this, um, including the very strange letter he wrote to the National Council of Churches uh, uh, about it. Um, one of the old arguments by historians was, even if you're right that you had to find a way to reduce the casualties that, were necessary, that would have occurred, couldn't you have dropped in a demonstration project? The problem was that as far as the U.S. knew, we only had two working bombs. It would take a long time to make a third one. And the question is, if you waste one on a demonstration project, one if the second one doesn't do the job, then you have no third one to use. And there, so I understand the problem. I, I really do. And if I'd, I would not have wanted to sit in that chair. And so I am second-guessing in a way that's probably unfair many years later. So let's just say it's morally troubling to me after all these years, although I, th although I think I understand the, cal the calculus that led to the decision. Does that answer the, the first of our... Uh, uh, Oh, oh, I see. Right, right, right. Well, the, the, two things very, very, very briefly. Uh, the Obama administration uh, has said that it's one of its top priorities, that, that nuclear proliferation, stopping proliferation, I'd say, is one of its top priorities, as is reducing the size of the American and Russian arsenals, which is also a goal of the Bush administration and, uh, and so on. This is all really good, but I think actually people pay a lot less attention to our nuclear arsenal than they did when I was a kid. When I was a kid in the United States, we had... Uh, we had air raid drills, you know, we had to hide under the desk, literally, at, or sometimes we'd go out in the hall. Uh, Wednesday, the first Wednesday of the month, at, I can't remember, was it noon? I don't remember, the sirens would go off. I was in Washington, D.C. Every month when I was growing up, we had these air raid drills. Um, there, people know it's there, it's in the background. I think people have less of an awareness of it. When I was a kid, the kids talked about, do you think there'll be a nuclear war this year and things like that? I don't think they talk about that anymore. I may be wrong. Um, and I don't think my generation thinks about it in the, way, the obsessive way we thought about it when, when, I, when I was younger. I think they actually did. So one of our do. children, 9-11. Well, I think they, so. think about, they, they think about the possibility of destruction, and maybe nuclear is part of it. I agree with you. We were talk, talking to young people 
um, uh, about this. One theory is that the young people party so hard in f it because they're worried that right. um, about about tomorrow and so on. That I, I find I, that very sad, but but very plausible. I have my my uh, Stefan Edlis. My second question is actually coming first. Uh, this is a subject so of morality. Okay, <laughs> you led me into it. <laughs> Morality and war. You, there was a very interesting comment that you made about who's allowed to shoot uh, legitimate government against. Uh, <clears throat> uh, so the question is, uh, why is uh, are the uh, rebels or activists or terrorists, whatever you call them, allowed to shoot that the government troop and Assad is not allowed to shoot? And which brings me to the first question: What happens if the fireman turns out to be the arsonist and uses uh, the moral? Uh, cover and has some perhaps high organizations like Human Rights Watch using the moral uh, mm -hmm. argument yeah. when the facts may be darker. Well, those are those are, I think actually very important questions, and I see the echo of the question you asked uh, yesterday yesterday's session uh, uh, as well. Um, uh, two things very briefly on the second point: the risk that the that the firefighter is the arsonist is real, but there's nothing to do about it except keeping our eyes open. I mean, I, literally, there's, 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 you can't regulate that possibility away. Um, we keep our eyes open, we keep making moral arguments, you can't entirely eliminate uh, uh, the risk, and that's a fact, I, I, I agree. Um, there's the risk is a fact. As to the first point about being allowed to shoot, there's a point of, of actually some complexity in just war theory, and here I think that that the Obama administration has not thought it through deeply enough, has not talked about it deeply enough, because the Obama administration, like the Bush administration, basically has divided the world into two groups of people. Uh, there are people who have a legitimate right to fight, and people who don't have a legitimate right to fight. So one of the big questions, put al-Qaeda out of the equation. Just take a country we may like. So suppose that um, it's the American South, and a group of slaves take up arms uh, against their masters, all right? So under the Obama administration's theory, it seems to me, as under the Bush administration's theory, uh, they have no legitimate right to fight. They're not a government. Um, and, even if they, and even if they organize themselves, both administrations are taking the position that in order to have a legitimate right to fight, you have to follow the rules of the Geneva Convention, which means you have to have a chain of command. Um, you have to wear insignia openly, and you have to have a single place that could control you, and, and so on. And in principle, these are actually pretty good rules. But we can all imagine situations where the justice of a rebel cause is so obvious that we would hate to see them lose their legitimacy because they hadn't followed these rules. And so the hard truth there is you have to look at the case and look at all the facts and make an evaluation. You can't, the weakness of both the Obama and Bush positions is they make a kind of a priori judgment that you're in this category or that category depending on these rules. And the truth is you've got to look at the case even just for clear moral thought, you've got to look at the case um, uh, and, and try to work through what you know. Now, the reason I said this reminds your question yesterday is I know that part of your concern is that a lot of times Americans don't have the facts. That a lot of times the facts we get reported may not be correct. And I do think that it is often a weakness, especially if we rely for, say, just one single source on our facts. I said it at the presentation yesterday. I'll say it again. Because we have so much military might, because we use it, we put that puts enormous pressure on electing leaders we trust, and not just we trust to make good judgments, but we trust to have good evaluations of whether the information they've been given is reliable uh, or not. The last thing we'd want is presidents making war policy on the basis of what they saw on the evening news or something like that. We'd like to believe they have information uh, that, uh, uh, that, that we don't, but certainly we need to think about electing people, whatever may be our views and other issues, whose judgment we trust at moments like that. Other questions. So remember, we have a mic here for you. So I think you actually got yourself into line. So please, and those of you who have your hands up, please come forward and, and get ready. Remember, just tell us who you are. My name, is, my name is Jake Silverman. I have two questions. One is, does the, rise, does the fact that using drones puts no American lives at risk affect the morality of it from an American standpoint? It's obviously, you're putting... If you're sending one American soldier in to kill one uh, combatant, then you're putting two lives at risk. But if you send in a drone, you're putting one, essentially. So does that look at it from an American perspective? Looking at it from an American perspective, does the lack of putting an American life in danger, 
And then my second question is, I read Samantha Power's wonderful book, A Problem from Hell, which kind of made me a little bit probably tougher, on, more passionate against that than I probably should be, even though it is such a horrible thing. When you're, when you're dealing with something like Rwanda, where you have 800,000 killed in 100 days, and it's, it was mainly civilians doing the killing. It wasn't an army doing it. So you could pretty much easily tell who was carrying it out with a low risk of killing civilians. Was it, is it morally justifiable to use whatever means necessary to stop something genocide, basically? Um, two points. Um, those, are, those are good questions. So as, as to uh, uh, question one, um, I don't think the U.S. has a moral obligation to put its troops at risk. There are people who do believe that. People have written books arguing that you can't fight morally unless you put live, your own lives at risk. I don't believe that. I do think the fact that lives are not at risk creates additional – the risk that we'll do it too often, which is the reason for additional moral scrutiny. That's the point I was trying to make before. With respect to Rwanda, um, if it's that's bad, are all means appropriate? Well, let me tell a story, again, that I told yesterday. Those of you who were here – who heard the presentation yesterday, I'm sorry if you hear the story the second time. Uh, before Yalta, 1943, um, Churchill meets with the War Cabinet. And the way Churchill tells the story in his memoirs, this is told differently in other places, but the way Churchill tells the story, he and his War Cabinet decide that we should draw up a list of the 300 top leaders of the Nazi regime. We should put them on a shoot-to-kill list, shoot-on-sight list, and if they're, if they're caught, they should be summarily executed without benefit of trial. Churchill believes earnestly this will shorten the war. He thinks either these people will run into hiding or their own people rise up against them, realizing if this is the real problem, we can stop the war by killing these 300 people. Okay. Um, then the rest of the story is Churchill tells it, and here's where the story gets, begins to be disputed. But as Churchill tells the story, then he goes to Yalta. He and Roosevelt get there two days early. He shares with Roosevelt. After I think this is great. Stalin comes. He thinks it's great. Just 300 is too small a number. It should be 10,000 shoot on sight. You know, and that, 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 that's the way. And, and that seems highly plausible. So that's what Al Churchill tells the story. Now, but the, but the first part is the interesting part. So, if, so think about it. If we could have, suppose Churchill's right. If you could have ended World War II by agreeing to shoot on sight the top 300 Nazi leaders, would it have been worth it as opposed to letting it go on, letting the genocide go on, letting the slaughter on the battlefield go on? It seems like a pretty good deal, actually. Um, you'd have, we could argue about the morality of assassination, which assassination we're talking about, although we'd like to say we're targeting people in the chain of command. It's not assassination. It's the personal targeting that traditionally made it assassination. It was aiming at a particular person rather than a group. That was, that, that was the old distinction, which, which I think was that actually a more sensible use of the, uh, of the word. That doesn't mean that all methods are necessary. Are, are legitimate. There's a lot of methods that may be legitimate that we wouldn't use in ordinary times, perhaps, that would be legitimate if a regime was doing things that are particularly, uh, that are sufficiently horrible. Okay. Next question. Um, Tony Clancy, two questions. Um, I'll try to be very brief. Um, a, uh, from a strategic perspective, a Hellfire fired from a drone is the same whether it's CIA or Army. Would you make a legal or ethical distinction? Um, on who uh, is in the chain of command. So that's the first one. Second one is, um, I think we'd all agree, responsibility to protect is a good extension to the UN Charter. Um, how do you balance small state sovereignty with large state potential aggressiveness, and what's the checks and balances? Um, two uh, good questions. With respect to the question whether a drone is fired by the CIA or, uh, or by the uh, military, I don't think that has any moral implications. It has implications of domestic law. It may have implications of international law. Here's the thing, that uh, if, uh, the, the way to think about it is this. Um, the Obama administration takes the position that if you are not in uniform subject of chain of command, you have no right to fight. If you are working for the CIA and, and sitting in your, in, in your Air Force base and, and firing and controlling these missiles remotely, you're certainly a combatant. Um, I assume that the administration say you're a legitimate combatant, that is, someone targeted you and, and, and so on. So it makes the, the calculation a little bit, uh, a, a little bit uh, uh, complicated, but, but I don't think it may make a legal, not a world difference. What was the second question? I'm, I'm sorry. It was on uh, responsibility to protect. Responsibility to protect, right, right, right. So responsibility to protect, which, of course, we talked about a little bit yesterday, um, uh, is uh, agreed on, let's put it that way. I'm trying to find the right, I'm, I'm trying to find a, 
a, a, a sufficiently um, neutral way of putting it, is agreed on in 2005 unanimously uh, in the United Nations. What's not agreed on at any time is what it means. Uh, that is to say, it basically says uh, that uh, your sovereignty only extends as far as not doing these particular things listed here if you commit genocide, that that means that for certain purposes you're not full sovereign and so on. Well, it doesn't tell you whose job it is to come in and stop you, which is one of the really interesting um, uh, questions. It, it is good that it puts regimes on notice that there is a line. The line may be unclear. There's a line they can't cross, or if they do cross, there may be consequences. It, it's, it's hard to figure out. We don't know what the exact numbers are that the line represents, but certainly there is a line, which is something there wasn't, um, that there wasn't uh, uh, before. Uh, but the risk you talk about is real. That is to say, the downside of having the responsibility to protect, that is to say that we are responsible for the citizens who may, against whom a government may commit genocide in another country, the downside of having that written into international law is that it is possible uh, as you meant, uh, said a moment ago, it is possible for uh, the guy with the fire bucket to be the arsonist. That is to say, you could use that as cover uh, to, uh, as John Lecrae says, pinch off a country. Uh, you could go grab a country on the ground that they're, uh, you know, they're um, uh, oppressing their own citizens and somebody's got to step in and it might as well be me. Again, you can't, there's not a legal answer to that. The only answer is to pay attention, is for us to really to pay close attention to what ours and other governments are doing and to do our best to elect people we think will make wise and, and moral decisions. Okay. Next question. Thank you. Um, I have in the back of my mind that really provocative fact you referenced about the amount the United States spends relative to the rest of the world. And then your point about the difference between whether someone can fire on us based on their kind of international standing as opposed to based on our military might. But the question I want to pose is a bit sort of building off of that, but I'm wondering within the kind of moral framework and the set of questions we need to ask about any particular war, do we also need to consider the implications of that war for what I will refer to as the nonviolent dimensions of each society in question? So in other words, what are the implications of that war for ongoing nonviolent interventions or even things like education systems and so forth? I think that's, a, that's an important question and one we don't pay enough attention to. Um, I, I write about, I talk about this in the book actually, and others have written about it as well, but I think it's important when we think about just war theory that just war theory needs to be modified to include what you might think of as the conditions of just peace. That is, what kind of shape is the country in question going to be left in after you're done, and what are your responsibilities after you're done? I mean, it's really interesting uh, how swift we've been to move out of Iraq. There used to be a, a, a a principle of customary international law, well, it used to be, as far as I know, it's never been repealed, people just don't talk about it anymore, that ran roughly like this. If you overthrow the government of another country, you are then responsible for providing security and basic services to the people of that country until a government that can do that is in place. And if you believe that, I actually believe that principle, then the United States has no right to leave Iraq until the government can provide security and the basic needs of its people. If you think it can, then we left. It's great. If you think it can't, then we left too soon. I think that's actually a correct position, in, uh, a correct principle of international, uh, of, uh, international law. Now, I, I think that a lot of countries don't sufficiently take into account these infrastructure, social, and, and, and other infrastructure questions, but increasingly the United States actually does. If you look at the assessments we do before wars, and assessments that are actually done by the military, there's actually become a big part of them, is figuring out not only how to avoid targeting things like schools, even empty ones, and, and so on, but also how to keep them functioning or get them functioning after the war is over as quickly as possible. That's some learning that we've done over the past couple of decades, and that's all to the good. I think, I think all of that should be a part of the moral responsibility that's a part of a war. It's not just we're going to overthrow the bad guys, we got them, we're gone. But there's a continuing responsibility uh, to repair and possibly improve uh, what was there. In a sense, the, what happened in Japan and Germany, uh, especially Japan, uh, after, after World War II is more what I have in mind. Good. Um, uh, Rick Griffey. So uh, among those who discuss just war theory, uh, and this gets at, to some extent, your, your discussion of the, of, the, of the idea that just or moral war should transcend partisan differences within a society. 
it seems to me the canon for just war theory is largely Eurocentric and Judeo-Christian or whatever. I mean, what, what do you do in terms of, dis, of the morality that may come from another culture I mean, and, and balance that? And, and, and to some extent, that may even in tactical terms relate to the question that was just asked in your response, which is Iraq also asked us to leave. So, so does that mean, it, do we take that as a stable uh, governance system or do we override it? Yeah, well, as to the second question, um, Iraq asking us to leaving only matters um, in, in customary international law if it's being asked by a government that can actually control the country. Otherwise, it doesn't really make, make any difference. As to the first question, the fact that Judeo-Christian doesn't particularly bother me. If other people have other systems of argument they think are better, then they should certainly argue them and present them. Michael Walzer at Princeton has an interesting work about just worth thinking in Judaism and in Islam. And one thing that's really interesting is that in Judaism, he, what, he, what he says, and this isn't my field, he says in Judaism there tends to be a lot of writing about how to make war, um, a lot of rabbinical writing about how to make war, not as much about when to make war. In Islam it's just the different. It's exactly the opposite. There's a lot of writing about when and not as much about, uh, uh, about how. Um, there are there's some interesting just war stuff um, that comes out of a number of Eastern traditions, some of which I've actually taught in the classroom, along with some um, um, Islamic and, and Jewish uh, sources um, uh, as well. The, but that's why I said the way that I said that, that President Obama invited us to use the tools of the just war tradition. And maybe there are other moral traditions that we should be invoking and learning about. My point is I would like to see all of this argued in moral terms rather than our constant resort to legal terms. Did the UN approve? How did the Security Council vote? What did Congress do? Rather than, than immediately backing off of talking about right and wrong, I'd like to see us embrace right and wrong. And if we have different standards of right and wrong for cultural or other reasons. Let's talk about that. Let, let's have conversations about where that comes from. And this is how I evaluate what's right. And based on this, this is what I think we should do. And I think that would be a good conversation to have. The fact that our moralities come from different sources is exactly the reason to have the conversation. There are a lot of philosophers who say that's why you can't have the conversation. I believe exactly the opposite. That's the reason to have more conversation is because of those differences. Our last question. Thank you. Uh, Shelley Don. This is a legal question. I'm uh -oh. <laughs> interested in your view of the use of drones to assassinate American citizens uh, uh, internationally and what uh, you believe the source and authority is for that decision. Um, under domestic law, as traditionally understood, we've always had the right to, if, if an American citizen turns on the battlefield fighting with the enemy, you can treat him the ways of every other citizen. And that goes back to the Revolutionary War. Um, and th that, that part is a long tradition. The interesting question about using of, use of drones to kill Americans is not whether you can do it, it's whether it's any different if you do it here. That is, suppose you did in the United States. Suppose that we were to discover there's some American citizen sitting in an apartment down in Denver and he's a citizen, he's plotting again, some, could we just take him out with a, with a drone? It, it, I think you can make an argument that it might be different domestically. But internationally, if there is a sufficient case to do it against someone who's not an American, the same case would count against someone who is an American. That is not different as a matter of either domestic or international law. So when the Obama administration targeted um, al-Awlaki uh, in Yemen, the question, the right question isn't, uh, was he an American? The right question is, was their description of him accurate, which is actually something that some people have argued with, that is the question about the particular role he played, whether he really was playing the role that people said. Maybe if he was, then they may have had just cause, if not, not. By the way, the Yemen thing is also the very interesting part. Again, the Bush administration didn't do any targeting um, in Yemen because they were wary of the worldwide battlefield point. The Obama administration has embraced the worldwide battlefield idea and has said publicly they can do it anywhere and has refused to rule out the United States. I think the question whether you can do it in the United States is really the, the difficult uh, well, can question. I, can I follow up briefly? If, if you were in the United States, wouldn't you be bound by our legal system and wouldn't you have to charge that individual and give him due process in our criminal courts before you could execute him? I mean, I don't think that the population here would tolerate that kind of use of force indiscriminately, and there would be, I, I don't think... Well, you, you, the, the difficult word is the word indiscriminate, but, uh, but imagine, imagine two cases. So I gave you the case of the guy who's sitting in Denver applying to the United States. Could you just blow him up as opposed to trying to arrest him? I think on there you're probably right about how uncomfortable we would be with that. But imagine a different case. Imagine it's World War II, and imagine an external invasion of, um, of American 
of, of the American continent in which some of the invaders are happen to be Americans who are fighting for the other side. Whatever we could do to the others, we could also do to them in that particular context, even though it was on our shores. If you shoot, you could shoot them. Your question it becomes interesting. If you arrested them, could you try the military courts martial? Would really be interesting. That's the legal question. That is, if you arrest Americans on American soil, and they're American citizens, could you charge them military courts martial instead of in domestic court? The Obama and Bush administrations both say yes. That both administrations take the view: I can arrest an American on terrorism charges in the United States, and if I so choose. I can try him uh, in a military rather than a domestic civilian court. That's the position of both administrations. The courts haven't quite gone that far because the relevant arrests, there's a question whether they're taking place in US soil, but I think the courts are probably going to go along with that. I am uneasy with it. I'll tell you very honestly, I'm uneasy with that assertion of authority, but I think the courts will, or would let the administration um, uh, do that. If you arrested American, you went to Denver, found the guy planting the bomb, arrested him, decided to try him in a military courts martial if he was part of an organization making war against the United States, I think the courts would let them do it. As a practical example of that, I, they did arrest somebody in Denver. Uh, they arrested that cab driver, and, and he is uh, in, in the civil uh, courts in the criminal justice system. Right, but he wasn't an American citizen, right? I don't think, I think it was an American. I, I know the case, but I, think, I don't think it was an American citizen. He was, he was a legal resident. I don't think, I don't think, but, but that's, Maybe but we agree, could that, continue this Yeah, we could continue this. Anyway, but, but, but let me just, but, but, but these are the right questions to raise. That is, it, it strikes me that, that it upsets you. And therefore, the right thing to do, I think, is not, generally, if it's legal, if you think you could make the argument, even if it's illegal. I mean, even if it's legal, it could still be immoral. It could still be wrong. And I think when we think something is wrong, just is morally wrong, we ought to make the case. That should be part of our armor of argument for and against the things that our governments do in the name of war. And in theory, we may have to have this discussion post-election. <laughs> well, yes. Thank you. Thank you very much.